1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve his, with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone is to go back to his own town, just so far. Morning, everyone. So if you don't go over the holiday, there will be good news on Sunday mornings, at least. You can open your Bibles to Samuel, and we are going to come to a break here for the holidays. We'll pick it up next year again, um, back into Samuel. Uh, so let's pray. Father, thank you that you are our Lord. Thank you that you know what we need to learn. Thank you that uh, you teach us. Sometimes you teach us in hard ways. Lord, we thank you for that too. But we pray that we will learn and that we will be able to perceive and see how good and how glorious and how wise you are. So as we come to your word this morning, Lord, we do pray for that uh, insight. We thank you for these uh, words that are written down in the Old Testament so that we may today learn uh, what are the dangers of our own human wisdom 
And yet, Lord, we pray that you will help us to move, recognize it, to confess it, to turn away from ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Good. So this is a new little section really starting. So we're kind of cheating a little bit. We're going into the next section. So if you read uh, one of the book 1 and 2 Samuel, you'll find that every now and again, he gives like a kind of a summary statement of what's been going on. So chapter 7 really is a summary statement. Chapter 8 opens a new uh, avenue. Samuel and uh, Saul is going to become the major kind of focus for the next couple of chapters up until the end of chapter 14. Uh, and then chapter 15 all the way to 2 Samuel somewhere there. It's all about uh, David. But we are uh, ending off this section because we think it's a, it's a good place uh, for us to, to break it. So we're breaking it slightly different to the writer himself. But in any case, let we start. On your outline there, you'll find uh, right at the top, the main idea really that kind of underlies everything that's going on here is that security matters. So how many of you sitting here have locked your houses? Alarms on? Um, armed response ready? You sure you've got enough locks? You've got nice neighbors? They'll check out for you. Security matters, isn't it? Do you, will you ever have enough locks on your doors? Will you ever be able to secure what you've accumulated perfectly? Security is a massive issue, isn't it? I mean, it's a big seller. The biggest companies in the world are insurance companies. They sell you security when things don't go according to plan. We plan life to be good. We plan life to be full. We plan life to be prosperous. We plan life to kind of go up. And uh, yet we have got these massive companies that actually keeps on reminding us it ain't going to happen. Stuff is going to break. You are going to get sick. People are going to steal your stuff. Economy is going to crash. How are you going to survive? Are you going to be secure? Can you live in this world? I mean, that's a fascinating thing, isn't it? We are in our country, we are all fighting, and there's all sorts of what we call identity politics. Is there a political party that represents me and my ideas and my understanding of life well enough so that I could vote for them, so that they could secure the life that I believe I deserve and want for my children? I mean, that's all about security, isn't it? I mean, the government's supposed to do the right thing and make sure that life flourishes so that everybody is more secure. Security is a massive issue. We could spend... We could spend the whole morning just talking about it. And that's really at the heart of this issue that lies here in Israel's own experience. They experience life like we do. You live, you suffer, you have a great time, you flourish, you die. That's, they have no different world to the world that we are living in. Um, but they have a peculiar issue, uh, and that is that there's a little bit more national the background to what is going on. Uh, they are in the land Life is a bit upside down. They haven't had really a unified leader um, that pulled everybody together. Samuel has done that for quite a while now. He's come up onto the scene. He's been a leader for all Israel. So if you read Samuel against the book of Judges, you will recognize in Judges, every now and again, a leader gets raised and he kind of saves a couple of the tribes. But they've never had a central government. Remember the last line of Judges? In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did as he saw fit. So the two statements. Here we saw Samuel is being raised up. He is quite a leader. He's the leader for all Israel. And all Israel knows that he's the leader. And he's the judge for all of Israel. 
and things were going pretty well at the end of chapter 7, if you can remember last week. Everything is going well. Samuel is judging well. There's peace. They ever conquered their enemies. They subdued some of them, even made friends with the Amorites. So things are fairly secured, and we don't know the length of time. We're not told the years since that great victory over the Philistines until the end of the chapter. So we're not told. But now in chapter 8, things in this world keeps on changing. Great, glorious, wonderful Samuel. But chapter 8, verse 1, when Samuel grew old. When you get old, I take it you've got a little bit less energy, a little bit less ability, a little bit less drive. So he's old and he appoints his sons to be uh, leaders in Israel, judges in Israel, which is a little bit of an interesting problem because nowhere ever was a judge to pass on the judgeship to his children. It's never happened. happened once or twice. People asked for it. If you go and read in the book of Judges, and they said, no, we can't do that. God raises a judge. It's not hereditary. It's not in the bloodline. If you're a judge, your children aren't necessarily judges. But he's growing old. He appoints his sons, gives them their names, and the exercise fails, isn't it? Verse 3, but the sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So Samuel is old. His sons that he's appointed are not so good. Uh, and they are actually very similar to two other sons of an old man that we've read about. Can anyone remember who that was? Eli, the old man, we are being told every again and again, he's old, 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 and he's getting older and older, older and blind and blind and blind and weak and weak and weaker. And he's got two sons. And his two sons are fantastically upright, good boys. They pervert justice. And Samuel's sons pervert justice. Actually, I love the word. The word pervert means to swerve. Have you ever seen people drive? Sometimes you drive behind somebody, and when they have to turn left, they go right first. Because they can't see the curb, so lack on this side. So they go around that way. You know, they're on the edge. When they turn right, you can see the curb, so you cut the corner. Eh? That's what they say. They sometimes swerve that way, and sometimes they cut the corner this way when it comes to justice. So Israel is obviously worried. What is going to happen to us? Because you are old, you are not so energetic anymore, your two sons that you've appointed is not so great, and so that seems to be their security is threatened. Things have been pretty well up till now. What now? Plan B. What are we going to do? How are we going to make sure the future is more secure? So you've got that? That's verses 1 to 3. The rest of the story is really an interaction between the Israel, Samuel, God, God, Samuel, Israel, and it keeps on happening. So I've kind of put, plotted it out for you on the outline. The Israelite leaders come to him. They ask him something. Samuel is kind of upset. He goes to the Lord. The Lord speaks to him. Uh, then he speaks to the people. Then the people speak to him again. Then he speaks to the Lord. Then the Lord speaks to him, and then he speaks to the people. I mean, it's kind of interesting debate going on in this little section. And so here they come with this proposed solution. So in the light of our crisis, our concerns for our security as a, as a country, as a, as a land, as a people, why won't you, please will you appoint um, for us a king as all the other nations have? But I mean, they really started badly, hey? Never when you have to fire somebody by reminding them that they're old and their sons are wicked. Say, Samuel, thank you very much. You know, you did a good job. You did well. Don't walk up and say, hey, you're old. And your sons aren't good. 
and so point to somebody else. So he, he may have felt a little bit upset. We can understand that, isn't it? You are old, and so let's move. And so they say, let's appoint a king. So there are three major important little words in that sentence. King, judge, like all the other nations. Now, if you know your Old Testament well, you would know there is some very interesting tensions. Kingship has not happened. We've just been told. There's no, been no king in Israel up until the end of the book of Judges. Why is the king supposed to come eventually? So if you come tonight, you'll find out. All right? This is how to get you there. So we'll find out that kingship is not actually something new in the Old Testament. It's been around for a very long time. They just haven't appointed a king. So the fact that they ask for a king in and of itself is not a problem. The fact that they are wanting a king to judge them is not so much a problem because you need somebody to decide disputes within people. The problem lies in that last phrase. Appoint for us a king as all the other nations have. Which is fundamentally a rejection of their identity as God's people. Remember what God, why did God create Israel out of nothing, saved Israel out of Egypt, and brought him to himself at Mount Sinai? Anybody can remember why did God do that? So that they will be like everybody else. Right? So God created a new nation so that this new nation would be like all the other nations. Is that why? No. He said, I'm going to create you as a nation so that you will not be like all the other people, so that when they look at you, they will know that I am the true and living God and that I am the one who rules in absolute righteousness and justice, so that you may hold out hope for those nations, that they may come and ultimately be saved. So now they are saying, we don't want to be your people. We want to be like everybody else. That's actually what they are saying. And that obviously is a problem. Samuel doesn't seem to quite get it, because the author tells us in verse 6, uh, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, what actually was evil in his eyes, and so he prayed to the Lord. So it seems like Samuel is a bit more worried that he has been sidelined than worried that they want a king like all the other nations. We don't know. You can come and argue your point tonight if you think that's wrong. But it seems like Samuel is a little bit not quite there himself. He's a bit more hurt than anything else. And he doesn't want Israel to move away from the judgeship and maybe his own judgeship. And so he talks to God. And God gives three very startling answers. Right up front, verse 7, God says to him, listen to them. Give them what they have asked for. Number one. I mean, what? Give us a king like all the other nations. God says, give it to them. Secondly, God gives a very interesting interpretation of what's going on. God says to him, Samuel, my boy, they are not rejecting you. They have rejected me as their king. But Samuel, it's worse than that. This has been their pattern ever since I saved them out of Egypt. Samuel, if you really understood their heart, you would have not been surprised by this because they have always wanted to worship like all the other people worship and live like all the other people live. 
They never have really wanted me as their king, my way. They wanted me to be a king like they want me to be a king. So they've actually been doing this all along. This is a terrible thing. They've rejected me as their king. But they've always been doing this, which is quite interesting. So when you read the book of Judges, it's quite clear that's what they've been doing. Every single time they say, we don't want to worship the true and living God as he has revealed himself. We want to worship God the way we see fit, how we understand life to be, what we can see and what solutions we can come up with. That's what they have been doing. And so God says, now warn them solemnly and tell them what is going to happen when you have a king like all the other nations. And that is what we find in verses 10 to 18. He actually warns them. So God interprets it quite radically, isn't it? He's saying, it's because they love other gods. That's why they don't come to me. That raises some interesting questions, isn't it? That behind all the laws and regulations of life does not lie just other people, but other spiritual realities that he raises. He doesn't, doesn't say they, they want to live like they want to. No, they want to worship other gods. That's what they are after. And so that's fascinating to see how God interprets it. So you think you have your own mind and you make up your own mind and Bible says, no, you don't. There are literally spiritual forces around that influences the way you think about life and how you look at life and how you interpret life and how you think will solve and find security in life. If it is not him... You are being influenced by other things. Bit of a shocker to our culture, isn't it? We think we are pretty uh, powerful and wise. And so he says it's actually a, a spiritual reality problem, not just a physical problem. And then he says to them, warn them clearly what will happen when you have a king like all the other nations. What will he claim as his justice, actually, is the word being used. And that's why I put justice on your outline. Samuel is speaking to the people of Israel, warning them about the justice of the king. It's funny. It's a play on word. You want him to judge? So this will be how he will judge. This is how he's going to rule. And if you read it carefully, I actually missed out one. You'll see there, the number one thing that he will do is he will be a taker. 1, 2, 3, 4, verse 16 as well, and 17. Every single one of those phrases, he will take. He will take, 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 he will take. He will enslave you to himself. You want him to rule, then he will do that by enslaving you to what he's doing. I mean, look at the deal. God expected of Israel how much of their income to be going to God and his system. Anybody? Old Testament? 10%. Laka. Have you noticed how many 10% are on this thing? You worship God, you only pay 10%. You worship another God with his king. How many taxes are you guys paying? How many taxes are there to pay? To keep the system going? Who are you living for? Are you free? Today we are enslaved, isn't it? You jolly pay tax on a thought almost these days. <laughs> That's how the system works. 
You want to be ruled by humans in a human way, which is actually a spiritual way, you will pay for it. You live under my rule, you'll be free. You'll have life. You've rejected me as king who only charges 10%. And it's not even for me, it's for the guys working for me. This guy, 10%, 10%, 10%, 10%, kind of adds up. At the end of the day, you pay 60, 63. Where's all the economists here? How many cents in the rand do we pay tax? If you account all the taxes we pay? 50%. Only enslaved. Boom. So he says, this is what's going to happen. You want this king? This is what is going to happen. He is going to tax you to death. But he's not just taxing money. He's taxing your children as well. They're going to belong to him. Because he's a monarch. Everything in that kingdom is his. And he's going to do with him what he needs to do with him. And there's another little word that runs through this a number of times. I don't know if you've picked that up. You pick up the other one? So not only will he take, he will take for who? Him. His. Just read it. How many times his is repeated? His chariots, his vineyards, his servants, his, 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 his. So when you decide you want to be ruled not by the true and living God, but by anything else, well, he says, warn them. This is what's going to happen. You are going to pay through your neck, and you will be enslaved, and you will cry out against your government. Anybody cries out here against our government? Lots of cries against the government, isn't it? Sounds familiar. And so here we see the truthful reality that when man wants to rule himself, he actually enslaves himself. Just on that economic point of view. We're not even talking about all the other ways that the scriptures tells us. Fascinating, isn't it? And so here's a real spiritual issue going on. It is like being like all the other nations, not standing out, living by God, living by God's sovereign control, sovereign love, which does require of you to be in relationship with him, but we would rather have the security than the actual relationship with the true and living God. And that's what they've decided. And so he tells them all of this. And verse 19, they shouted, No! We want a king. We don't care what you're saying. We want a king that he will not only judge us, but fight for us. God has just saved them in the book of Samuel, miraculously out of the hand of the Philistines. And now they say, we want to be judged by a human and we want to be led by a human. We don't want to you. It's a little bit tough to live by faith. We would rather live by sight. Something we can touch and see and maybe to some degree hope we can control. And so there's the debate. That's confirmed. That's what we want. God says, do you want it? They say, warn them. And then God says a third time to Samuel, give it to them. Three times God says to Samuel, give us what they are asking for. Hand them over to their own wisdom. Give it to them. Like a real father sometimes has to hand over his children to the temporal stupidity of their decisions so that in the hope they will bump their heads and come back. God says to Israel, you want, this is what you want, now I'll give you what you want. And then he actually says to him, but you're going to get fed up and you're going to cry to me and I'm not going to answer you. So that you may learn 
and understand. So God is actually very gracious, isn't it? He actually gives them an opportunity to learn from their own mistakes. He warns them, and then he says, okay, now go for it. And then Samuel turns to the people and says, go home. We're not sure if Samuel is doing this again because he's a bit miffed still. Does he want to delay it, or is he waiting for further instructions? You'll see in chapter 9, the story starts to unfold. But yeah, he says, okay, go. You have now decided what you want, and it will happen um, when it happens. And so here you see people are looking for security. And I take it we, in that sense, are also people looking for security. But here's the question. What do you want security for or from? That's the important question, isn't it? What is your greatest fear? That's probably where you spend your most money to secure yourself, isn't it? And is that true? Whatever you fear the most is where you'll spend most of your money to secure yourself and to secure those whom you love. What is fascinating is they want a king that is like everybody else. Now, we all know that the story doesn't end in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and carries on and is going to go through multiple uh, layers Samuel, Saul, David, and etc., 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 etc. But eventually we do come to another king that is what we call King Jesus. Can you remember when he was standing in front of Pontius Pilate? Pontius Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, Yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. I am a king like no other king. I am not like the kings of the nations. Because if I were, my subjects would have been knocking on your door with swords and spears and trying to kill you to demand that you set me free. I am a king that is completely in a different category of all kings. And so I am a king of truth. And I'm a king of justice. And I will establish justice by not taking, but giving my perfect life for your sin. I'll go willingly in weakness to the cross to save you from the actual reason why you need security in the first place. And the reason why humans need security in the first place is because of this little word. It's a very small word, only three letters long. It's called sin. Very easy to miss. Very easy to think there are other problems in the world that if we can solve them, we will have security. We can just make more laws, maybe. Hmm? Or point more policemen. Or have better courts. Or have everybody rich, so nobody will steal. And If we can only do those little things, then we're going to have security. Jesus says, I have come to do justice, so that I can give you the one thing that can solve the problem of insecurity in this world. I've come to give my life in justice, so that you may be forgiven and have security from everything forever in me. 
We just had Zahn's testimony. I don't know why Zahn always does this. When she has this great testimony, I've got to come and preach a, a lame sermon in comparison. What are you afraid of? What do you try to secure your life against? The sin problem will mean this world will be surrounded with this problem until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. There's only one place for you to be secure, and that is in Him. And He does it in an upside-down way. He comes in weakness, giving, not taking one single thing. He had no army. He had no house. He had no tax system. He says, but in me, I have conquered the problem of the human heart by giving. Isn't that incredible? Now, just think about it. What are you investing in the most to find where you'll find the best security? Are you investing the most into Jesus Christ and the gospel? Do you really believe that that is what every single human being needs is to know the Lord Jesus Christ? His forgiveness, His gift of righteousness, the new identity we have in Him, so that we can actually be secure from the consequences and the reality of sin. He's a completely different king, isn't he? But that's what we should be encouraging and investing in, isn't it? What are you investing your heart, your mind, your time, your money? What are you investing it in? You're investing in what you think will give you the greatest security from what you consider to be your greatest enemy. The scriptures flips the whole thing around. So your greatest enemy is the sin that is in every human heart. No amount of security is going to protect you from the evil in your heart or the evil in other people's hearts. There's only one person who can do that, and that is King Jesus. Great news. Do you know that wherever you are sitting? Then you trust that he has indeed conquered every single impulse to sin and every single consequence of that in himself. We've got to lift him up in our hearts and our minds. We've got to see the way that God sees it. There is no one that can actually, in the end of the day, promise you, if you invest in this, you will have, if you invest in him, you will have no death. Even if you die, you'll have no pain. There will be no hardship, no bitterness, no tears in him. Outside of him, we're all sitting here, tired, exhausted, fragile, fussed, confused, bitter, afraid. Yeah, that's the world we are living in. Jesus Christ has come to me. For I am the truth. In me, I give life and I give it for all eternity. Do you agree? Does your heart rejoice? Does it affect the way you think and behave and plan? What is it that you would like the world to hear where you can find real security. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we're going to come to your table right now. The very two signs that tells us that you have come to deal with that little thing, that little thing, sin, that is so small, we can easily in the moment-by-moment life forget that that little thing is what destroys every good thing that you've ever made and is always out there to confuse and to make sad and to make bitter. Thank you that in Christ, that little thing that has got such massive implications has been confronted by the perfect, willing other king that is no no one else. And that he's literally taken it all into himself. And that he's died and rose again so that everyone in him may have eternal life. Lord, as we look out into life, we ask that you will give us the eyes of your word through Christ to see that we will not misinterpret life and that we will not misinvest our lives but truly grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So strengthen our hearts as we come to your table. Thank you for the reminder of the things we in once has already know. Enable us, Lord, to overcome those moments of insanity when we really think there are other issues than this massive issue of sin and its eternal consequences that is messing up the world that we are in. And help us to come to our senses that there are indeed really no other answer for the accumulative and the individual problems of the human heart but the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to grow in our ability to see that quicker. Strengthen us as we come together in your name. Bring joy in our hearts and certainty and clarity of understanding. And so, Lord, we do pray that you will be gracious to us as we come to your table. And we pray this in your name. Amen.